Well, we are, as a church, going through the book of Judges together. This week, we find ourselves in Judges chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to Judges 6, 25. Uh, before we dive into Judges, though, we're gonna, our scripture reading for today is actually going to come from the New Testament, from uh, 1 John chapter 4. I'll invite Shandis to come and read, and I'll explain more why we're reading from the New Testament in a minute. But as she reads, let's go ahead and prepare our hearts to hear from God's Word today. Good morning. I will be reading 1 John chapter 4, verses 15 through 19. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So, when, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Amen. Did you pray with me, church family? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you um, have said that we can come to you with our fears and that God, in in exchange, you give us your love, which casts out our fear, drives out our fears. God, I ask and pray today that you would help me. Uh, I pray, God, you'd guard my lips, help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And God, for all of us, give us soft hearts, give us teachable hearts. God, I, I ask and pray that we would not be the same men and women, as we were when we walked in today. Lord Jesus, would you transform us? Could could we come today with our struggles? Could we come today with our weaknesses? Could we come today with our fears and our doubts? Bring them to the cross and experience your grace and mercy. We pray this all in the good name of Jesus. Everyone said, amen. Ask a question to start out with. What, What are you afraid of? What are your fears? Okay, uh, we, can, we can start out with simple things, you know, like spiders. Anybody here scared of spiders? Good, because they're awful and they are terrible. They're a product of the fall. I haven't found it yet, but it's in the Bible there somewhere. <clears throat> you can be scared of sharks. You can be scared of heights. I'm scared of both. If I ever met a shark at the edge of a cliff, that would be like my worst nightmare. <laughs> but we also have fears sometimes that are deeper, right? Some of you have lost a loved one to cancer, to a illness and you're, you're scared of, of that. You're scared of death. You're scared of uh, other things of a, of a much deeper nature. What about doubts? What, what are your doubts? What things are you not sure about? What things are you not certain of? What things you kind of wrestle with? What things kind of keep you awake at night just running through the back of your mind? Again, it, it could be Maybe simple things, you, you doubt yourself, you doubt your ability to, uh, you know, get a promotion at job, you know, get a promotion at your job, you doubt um, your abilities to accomplish certain things. Maybe your doubts are much more serious in nature. I'm really struggling to, to believe that God loves me. I'm really struggling to believe that the Bible is true. I'm really struggling to believe maybe there even is a God. I think that broadly speaking, Fear and doubt is a, is a pretty common human experience. Would you agree? Some of you are more naturally confident, and that's a, that's a good thing. That's fine. Um, but even the most confident people among us still, at times, have fear and doubts. In this passage today, we're looking at the story of Gideon. We're going to see him wrestling with some fear and some doubt. We're, we're, we're basically told explicitly about both that are present in his heart. And so we're going to look at these two themes today not only in the life of Gideon, but really just throughout the scripture in a slightly broader scope. And here's the big idea of where we're going today. Everyone struggles at some level with fear and doubt. The good news is that one day when we see Jesus face to face, all fear and doubt will be gone forever. The real question though, is what do we do in the meantime? What do we do until that day when we see Jesus face to face? So we're in the book of Judges, chapter 6, picking up in verse 25. It says, that night the Lord said to him, by the way, this is the the first one of these sermons in Judges that I haven't started out with, 
and Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, okay? Um, that's because we read it last week. Judge, um, Judges is this cyclical book where the people of Israel, they, they forget about their God and they start worshiping other false gods and then God allows them to experience the consequences of their, of their worship of these idols. He allows them to be conquered, taken over by uh, pagan armies and then they get miserable and they cry out to the Lord and then God raises up a deliverer and who delivers them and then this cycle starts all over again. So we're, we're slowing down the cycle now. The first, you know, five, six weeks, it's just we're seeing the cycle over and over again. Well, now we're slowing it down a little bit and we're unpacking the story of Gideon at greater length. Last week, you'll remember, Gideon had a face-to-face encounter with the angel of the Lord, with the son of God himself. He had a face-to-face encounter with God where God said, I'm calling you, I'm raising you up. You're gonna be the leader of the army. You're gonna help get rid of these, these big bad Midianites who have just wiped you out, who have brought you very low. And so Gideon's been called by God into a place of leadership, into a place of service. He's got a mission. He's he's like the Blues Brothers. He's on a mission from God, right? That night, that very night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. Okay, Baal and Asherah, if you weren't here uh, in week two, explain these are the prominent Canaanite deities. Um, The way that people would worship them was by engaging in so-called sacred orgies uh, to try to encourage these gods and goddesses of fertility to give the land fruit and grain and wine and water and oil and all those sorts of things. Um, This is very ungodly pagan worship. And what we see right here is that they didn't just have a little Baal statue. A lot of people had a little Baal statue in their house. A lot of people had a little shrine or whatever. But here we see that in, on Gideon's property, the household of his father, there's a full-fledged altar of Baal and there's a full-fledged Asherah. It's a big pole, kind of similar sort of to like a totem pole. Things of, of worship. So they're big enough that God says, it's not going to take one, it's going to take two bulls to pull them over. Okay, so just wrap your head around this. This is, this is very likely in their village, in their town, the center of pagan worship happening right there in the home of the man that God called to lead the people. Isn't that amazing? Take, take these two bulls, pull down the altar, and cut down the asher that's beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold there, very subtle, with the stones laid in due order. Then take that second bull, and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. Again, we're talking like making a point here. <laughs> this isn't just like, hey, go tear the stuff down and then kind of go hide out. It's like, no, no, use the stuff, light it on fire, kill the bull, make a big spectacle. Because God is saying, yes, I'm going to deliver you, but I'm going to deliver you on my terms. Yes, I'm going to deliver you, but I'm delivering you unto worship of me. Here we can see, and it's my first point, that Judges 6 agrees with Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. Here we have Gideon being faced with a choice. God's called him into worship. The the, the one true God of Israel, Yahweh, said, I'm calling you into worship of me, service of me, and you cannot compromise with these pagan gods. One author, scholar, uh, Daniel Block puts it this way. He says, pagan gods may tolerate the simultaneous worship of more than one deity, but Yahweh will brook no rivals. A fundamental tenet of covenant relationship in Orthodox Yahwehism, that just means a, a relationship with the one true God, is you shall have no other gods besides me. That's right out of the Ten Commandments. In charging Gideon to demolish the altar of Baal, God is pointing to the real problem in Israel. More serious than the oppression of the Midianites is their bondage to the spiritual forces of the land. This is what God's saying. He's like, hey, you think the Midianites are the real problem? You think the fact that you're enslaved by the Midianites is is your biggest bondage? I've got news for you. Your biggest bondage is your spiritual slavery. I'm going to deliver you, yes, from the hand of the Midianites, but my purpose is to deliver you from what's really the problem. Friends, the same is true for us as well. We cannot serve two masters. Jesus said it in Matthew 6. You're either going to love one or hate the other. Your heart can't be divided as much as we'd like to think we can. And and by the way, we're going to get into kind of Gideon's fear and Gideon's doubt. I actually think that this divided worship 
is part of what has made his fears and his doubts so pronounced. We all wrestle with fears. We all struggle with doubts. That's, that's, that's understandable, and I'll get more into that as we go. But how much more so do we give fear and doubt a window, an opportunity to actually control us, to, to, to have a deeper place in our hearts when our worship is divided, when we're not devoted to God alone? Verse 27. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. Good job, Gideon. But, and I love this, we get a rare window of insight. Because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he, he did it by night. Um, you don't get extra bonus points for being a hero here, Gideon, okay? So he did it by night. Now, listen, we're going to see in a minute that Gideon's fears were warranted. They're going to try to kill him. They're going to try to, they're trying to find who did this and they're going to take him out. Gideon obeyed, but he was very fearful. He obeyed. He did what God asked. Did, did he not? He, he, he did what he was supposed to do. But the Bible tells us, yeah, he's, he's kind of chicken about it too. And so this is my second point, and this is kind of a half point. I'm going to come back to these themes more detail later, but this is, this is something I want you to know. Many godly, faithful people experience fear. Sometimes in the church, we, we talk about having faith. Yes, we need to have faith. Yes, we need to uh, do not fear. It's the number one most often repeated commandment in the Bible. Do not fear. But you also need to understand that just because you experience fear does not mean that you are somehow not a godly person. You're not a faithful follower. We all experience fears. Here Gideon, he does. He obeys what God tells him to do. And it's, it's mixed with some fear. It's a short, that's a mini point. That's a half point, okay? Only write it on the left side of your paper if you're taking notes. We'll come back to this. Makes me think of the, 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 the quote. A lot of people have said something like it, but I like the way that Nelson Mandela put it. He said, uh, I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. Okay, that's true bravery. It's not that you just never feel scared but you're still willing to act because there's something more important to you than that fear. Continuing on, here's why he was afraid. Verse 28, when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? Then the men of the town said to Joash, that's Gideon's dad, bring out your son, Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped it. And after they searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. Now, just a side point here. If I was Yahweh, if I was God, which we're all very thankful that I'm not, my question would be, remind me again why I'm trying to save these people. Here they are. I'm reminding them of their spiritual bondage. I'm tearing down the altar and they're rushing to the defense of Baal and Asherah. And I'm just, you know, if I was God, I'm, ah, never mind. I'm trying to, I'll find some new people. But God's more gracious than that, isn't he? It, it kind of shows us that this Canaanization, really, this, this paganization of the Israel, uh, Israelite people is complete and I, it just could be hard to understand why God would even save him. Thank God his mercy is bigger than our sin. Amen. Verse 31, Joash said to all who stood against him. Now this is brilliant. This is a great moment of, of Joash, Gideon's dad, who's the one who's hosting this pagan worship on his property. He says, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a God, let him, let him contend for himself. If he's really a God, like, let him stand up for himself. What are you guys all, what are you guys all, like, up in arms about? Let him take care of it because his altar's been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon got a nickname, Drubbable. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. So Gideon's, Gideon's new name is Wrestles with Baal. And actually, you'll see later in the story, it kind of interchanges back and forth between the two names, Gideon, Drubbale. Should have had somebody else read that one. Just say it fast and confidently and nobody, nobody cares. I actually just like this because here's, Joash is a, is a conflicted man, right? He's, he's calling himself, he's a, he's a person of Israel, he's part of the covenant people of God, but yet he's hosting pagan worship. But here's a moment of actual theological clarity. 
hey, if, if Baal's really the God, let him take care of it. Leave my son alone. It's a good point. All right, so that's the end of this first vignette. Now we're moving towards the battle. Now all the Midianites and all the Amalekites and the people of the East came together. That's this coalition that would get together and they would come in and they would wait until it was harvest time and they would raid all of the food and they would take all the animals and leave the people of Israel just absolutely decimated and hopeless. So they're gathering. They crossed the Jordan. They camped out in the Valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. That's a fascinating phrase. Bible, the Old Testament in particular, talks a lot about the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him or came upon him. That's the only time I could find that, that specific verb of clothing came upon Gideon. Meaning to say that he is dressed for battle by the Lord himself. It's not going to be Gideon's great might that leads the people into battle. It's going to be the Lord. The spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. He sounded the trumpet and the Abiezrites, that's his, his clan, his, his family group, were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, that's his tribe, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, other tribes, and they went up to meet them. All right, we're getting ready for battle. It's their gathering. The forces have come in. Gideon sounded the trumpet. He's gathering his troops. We're ready for the battle. I'll tell you about the battle next week, okay? That's because the author of the scriptures, the author of the book of Judges, pauses yet again to give us one more story, one more insight into Gideon's heart. What's going on in Gideon's mind? What's going on in Gideon's psyche before he goes into this battle? Verse 36, Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone and it is dry in all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. Now, pause for a minute. Remember last week, he's, he's chatting with the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord touches the, the food, the lunch that he made with the end of the stick. It all went up in flames and then the angel of the Lord disappeared and Gideon was like, oh, I think I was just talking with God. And, and he already had a pretty dramatic confirmation, did he not? But here he is. He's saying, God, I just need just a little more confirmation. That whole dramatic flame food, Benihana thing, and then disappearing, that wasn't quite enough. I need just one more, one more proof. Verse 38 says, and it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed out the fleece, he wrung out enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Verse 39, but then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Hey, God, don't, don't be mad. Let me speak just once more. I don't, yeah, do a double confirmation is good, but let me, let me triple check, right? Triple safety check here. Let me just test once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground let there be dew. Now this is actually something that would be more miraculous than the other way because, you know, it's the nature of wool or fleece to, you know, to, to, to absorb the moisture and the ground would dry off quicker than that. But he's asking for the reverse. I want the fleece to be dry and the ground to be wet. And here's this where God says, all right, Gideon, I'm sick of your shenanigans. Knock it off. Just go do what I told you. Again, if I was Yahweh. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. <laughs> this is amazing, friends. This is, this is God showing up and meeting with Gideon in the middle of fear and now doubt. Is it, is it really? Are you sure you're calling me? And this is the second half of that first point that I made earlier. Many godly, faithful people experienced doubt. Again, Gideon's about to go. He's about to lead the armies. Uh, if you've read the story or familiar with it at all, you know that he's going to lead. You know that they're going to win. You know he's going to do what God told him to do. But here, he's just wrestling again. He's got doubts. Those of you who experience doubts, it does not mean that you're not a godly person. It does not necessarily mean that you're not a faithful follower of Jesus. One author and pastor, John Nielsen, says, I think that any Christian who hasn't struggled with doubts, at least at some level, is probably guilty of not thinking deeply enough about his or her faith or is just not telling the truth. And to that, I would say a hearty amen. 
we as Christians, we, we claim some fantastical sort of things, don't we? This is a book that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, written down over the course of a thousand years or more uh, through prophets, through apostles, and we believe it's the very words of God. What? What did you say? Just take a minute and think about that. That's an astounding claim, right? Oh yeah, by the way, our, our founder, our, our founder, yeah, they killed him, but also then he came back to life. What? Like, just take a moment and think about that, right? You, these are some fantastical sort of claims. It's, it's natural for us in our flesh, in, our, in our, our fallen human condition, to wrestle with some doubts on some things. By the way, this is a side note, but I do not recommend the whole putting out a fleece thing, okay? Uh, the whole putting out a fleece thing, quick show of hands, how many of you were raised in a church environment where putting out a fleece was like a thing, like a normal thing? Anybody? All right, Joe, I see that hand. I see that hand, brother. Uh, when I was a kid, I remember being like, you know, like a little kid and people were like, oh, well, you need to make a decision. Just put out a fleece. And, and nobody literally meant a fleece. Maybe one kind of weirdo that had like sheep and stuff, but mostly they meant like, we're just going to set some random benchmark. And if it's, if it's more than 72 degrees tomorrow, we'll stay here in the city. But if it's less than 72 degrees, we're moving to Cabo San Lucas. Like that was the kind of thing, like the, the, the way we're going to kind of test God. Here, here's why I do not encourage fleecing as a as a regular practice in the life of the church. First of all, we need to understand that in the Bible, there's a difference between what we would call a prescriptive text and a descriptive text. There are verses in the Bible that prescribe for us, tell us what to do. Love your enemies. Okay, got it. Now the hard part is doing that. But then there's also just descriptive texts. Abraham took his maidservant Hagar and laid with her and had a son. Like that's a descriptive text, not a prescriptive text, right? There, the Bible tells us sometimes things that happened and then the Bible tells us things to do. We have to be very careful about taking one of these stories and saying, well, this is what happened, so this is what we're supposed to do. We're not given a commandment to do the same in anywhere else in the Old and New Testament. In fact, there's a lot of other passages that say things like, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Secondly, though, this whole idea of like putting out a fleece, it really, it really puts God into a box, doesn't it? Hey, God, I need you to meet my conditions for obedience. Hey God, I, I, I want you to kind of jump through some hoops for me. Even in this passage, Gideon says, hey God, let not your anger burn against me. Gideon knows that he's, he's treading on some thin ice, does he not? And, and what's more, not only does it put God in a box, but at worst it can turn into some sort of gross, non-Christian superstition sort of a thing. Where we're checking for lucky rabbit's feet and omens and this and that and the other thing. That's, that's not biblical Christianity. That's superstition. The third reason why I don't think that we should be doing this whole put out a fleece for God thing is it doesn't really solve the problem, does it? It doesn't really solve the problem. What if Gideon had gotten up in the morning, he'd been like, well, yeah, the fleece is dry, but the ground's not like that wet. I meant like an inch of water, God, not just like moisture on the ground, right? Like how, how arbitrary is it? How, you could still, if you still have doubts, you could still find ways to struggle with that, you know? Hey God, if, if you want us to buy this church building, help us to raise $100,000. And then the church only raises like $96,000. Like those $96,000 are from the devil. God's not in this, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like it just gets weird. It just gets goofy. I know it's a weird analogy, but you understand what I'm saying? Like it, it doesn't really solve the problem. And number four, God clearly has given us his word. He's given us his Holy Spirit that lives within us. He's given us wisdom, sanctified common sense. And he's given us community. And we are clearly instructed in scripture to utilize all of those options ahead of us, in front of us, when it comes to making decisions. I just don't recommend following the example of Gideon. The good news is God is gracious. God is gracious. God is God is amazing to Gideon, God's amazing to us. But for those reasons, and, and many more I actually could give, uh, but it's a side point. Let's not do the sheep fleece thing. All right. So here's, here, we've reached the end of our story, and I want to back up again. I want to address those two themes of fear and doubt a little more in detail. And so I want to start with fear, and let me say about fear, this is my, my third point, if you're following along, is this. Fear is, it's very nature, it's a lack of sight of God. Let me explain what I mean. In the book of Genesis, the Bible says that we were created in the image and likeness of God, male and female, created for relationship with God. 
The book of Genesis actually says that, that God was walking in the garden. There's some sort of a, a closeness, an intimacy, a fellowship that we don't even experience. When Adam and Eve, our, our first parents, sinned, they, they ate of the tree that they were forbidden to eat from. The consequence of that sin is that they were driven out of the garden. The Bible uses some pretty intense language to describe what happened. It says that God drove them out of the garden and that at the entrance of the garden, there was an angel with a sword made out of fire and the man and the woman were cut off from that type of intimacy with God and that we as human beings, yes, we're alive, but we're all born in death because we're cut off from our power source. We are cut off from the source of all life. We were not meant by God to live in this state. What's more, we live in a fallen world and there are many things that that genuinely terrify us and they should genuinely terrify us. I mentioned earlier disease. Many people get sick. I mentioned death earlier. 100% of people will die. So, so we're cut off from God. We don't see God. We don't have as close relationship with him as we were created for. We live in a broken and a fallen world. Yes, we have fears. The number one most often repeated command in the Bible is not don't lie. It's not do not commit adultery. It's don't fear. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Depending on the different translations and how you look at it, there is somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 verses in the Bible where God says to not fear. And God doesn't say don't fear because, oh, your fears are just all an illusion. It's all in your head. He doesn't give us some power of positive thinking. Do not fear. You're stronger than this. You're bigger than this. You'll get through it. You know what God says time and time again? Do not fear because... I am with you. The solution to our fear problem is not mechanical. The solution to our fear problem is relational. God says, I will be with you. I will care for you. I will go before you. I will go beside you. I will go behind you, above you, beneath you, around you. I will be with you. One commentator, uh, Dale Ralph Davis, writing on this passage, he says, but I will be with you. Basically, God has nothing else or more to offer to you. You can go through a lot with that promise. It does not answer your questions about details. It only provides the essential. Nothing about when or how or where or why, only the what, or better, the who. Who? but I will be with you, and that is enough. God meets us in our fears because our fears are part of the very broken nature of the world, the broken nature of our sinful fallen humanity that he sent his son to deal with. God meets us in that place. The second one on doubt, um, addressing doubt, this is point number four, again, if you're following along, is this. All doubt is the result of sin, but not all doubt is sinful. Now, I want to be very careful how I say this, and I want you to, to, to really think critically with me. All doubt is the result of sin, capital S, sin, the sin nature, the, the fallen nature of the world that we live in, but not every one of our doubts that we wrestle with is necessarily sinful. Again, think about the nature of doubt. If we could see God face to face, Would we have any doubts? No, because we'd be like, there's God. He's right there. I see him. I have no reason to doubt. I am, I'm seeing him. But because of that separation, because of our remaining sin, because of the fallen nature of the world, we have these doubts. Now, I would argue that the Bible distinguishes two different directions that our doubts can go in. I'll read from John Frame. He's a kind of a living legend of a theologian and and scholar. He's written some very thick books. He says this. He says, The Bible constrains us to make a distinction between good and bad doubt. That amounts to a distinction between believing and unbelieving doubt. Believing doubt and unbelieving doubt. Just let those words settle in for a minute here. Unbelieving doubt is the doubt of a heart that is not transformed by God's grace. It doesn't really seek guidance from God, only a way to escape God's claim. 
Believing doubt, however, and then he's quoting from an author named Barnabas Piper. Believing doubt, however, instead of letting unbelief in, ventures out in faith and seeks to waylay it. Just as unbelieving doubt is against belief, this sort of doubt is the driving force behind belief. Now, I don't want to just tell you this, and I don't even want John Frame to tell you this. Let's go to the scriptures and let me, let's investigate this. Let's investigate this. I'm going to use the language, instead of unbelieving and believing doubt, I'm going to use the language of hard-hearted doubt and soft-hearted doubt. That's the language I'm going to adopt. Let me show you some examples of hard-hearted doubt. If you go into the Psalms, Psalm 78, talking about the wilderness generation, the generation of Israel that came out of Egypt, God's leading them into the promised land, but they're in the wilderness. They really doubted God. It says they sinned more against him, rebelling against the most high in the desert. They tested God in their heart. Second Kings, another generation later, the, the, the generation that was taken out of the promised land and taken into exile, the, the, the speaking says they would not listen, but they were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe, believe, trust in the Lord their God. In Luke 22, uh, in Jesus' earthly ministry, these religious leaders, these scribes, these Pharisees, they came up to him and they're, they're pressing him. They're like, Jesus, we got to know, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the promised one from God? You know what Jesus answers them? He says, even if I told you, you wouldn't believe me. Because it just gets right back in their face. You're not, gonna, you don't, you're not asking that question out of a sincere desire to know. You're just trying to push my buttons. Or, very sternly, Hebrews 3 Verse 12, we, we studied this in our Hebrew sermon series. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So friends, we can say quite easily in the scriptures that there is a form of doubt, there's a form of unbelief that is absolutely antithetical to the life of a, of a, of a faithful follower of Jesus. Hard-hearted doubt. God, I got these doubts. I got these questions. I'm putting you to the test. You are on trial. You better jump through my hoops. You better answer my questions or else I ain't following you. And the Bible has nothing good to say, nothing comforting, nothing encouraging to say about that kind of doubt. Now, I'm guessing that most of you, you're like, yeah, I'm tracking with you. I'm tracking with you. I get it. Not supposed to doubt. Need to have faith. Need to be strong. Some of you might struggle more with this idea, though, of soft-hearted doubt. Well, let me take you again to the scriptures and show you what I mean. Matthew 14. Peter. Good old Peter. Whenever you need to look at somebody who's a mess, you just look at Peter and you automatically feel a lot better about yourself. Amen? Jesus is out there, you know, walking on the water. And Peter is the guy, like, God bless him. Peter's like, hey, could I do that? And Jesus is like, come on out. Peter's like, Rad in Aramaic, and he steps out of the boat and he starts walking towards Jesus and then it says that he looks around and he's like, well, what am I doing? Like, there's waves and there's wind and I don't even have like a paddleboard or anything. And it says he starts to sink and Jesus reaches out, takes him by the hand, pulls him up, says, oh, you little faith, why did you doubt? But notice what Jesus said. He doesn't say, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? As he washes and sinks to the bottom of the lake, he grabs him by the hand and, and invites him into that next step of faith and trust. Mark chapter 9, there's a, a father and he has a, a, a young boy, probably a 10, 12-year-old boy who's had seizures since the time he was a little baby. Almost killed him, almost thrown him in the fire, almost thrown him in the water. And the, this father comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, if you could do anything, please. And Jesus, I love, it's kind of like this divine indignation. He goes, if I can do anything. He says, anything is possible for the one who believes. And the father cries out, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, the father cries out, I believe Help my unbelief. And what does Jesus do? No, you need to get rid of all that unbelief. You need to cancel that assignment of the enemy. You need to get rid of all that doubt. No, what does Jesus do? He heals the son. And he invites him into that next level of faith. John 20. Poor doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. 
Doubting Thomas needs an image rehabilitation. Some Christian PR firm needs to rework. Poor Doubting Thomas. He's called Doubting Thomas. Do you know why? Because he wasn't with the other disciples when Jesus appeared to them resurrected. And he's like, hey, wait a minute, guys. Is this for real? Like, did he really come back from the dead? Like, Doubting Thomas. Like, I would have said the same thing, okay? And you go back a few chapters in John. Before Jesus was arrested and betrayed, Jesus like, we got to go to Jerusalem. And they're all like, no, Jesus. The disciples were all fearful. They're going to kill you. And Thomas like, well, this might as well happen. Let's go to Jerusalem. Like Thomas is a cool guy. I like him. And he gets a bad rap. And it says that Jesus appeared to them. He takes Thomas's hands. He says, feel the, feel the nail holes. Reach into my side. Feel where the spear went in. He said, Thomas, you, you've seen and now you believe. Thomas falls on the ground, worships him. My Lord, my God. And Jesus says, you, you've seen and believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. Actually, let's keep going because I want to make sure you see this. Matthew 28. Again, after the resurrection of Jesus, if you're familiar with Matthew 28, you're probably familiar with what's called the Great Commission. The last instruction that Jesus gave to his disciples go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. Do you know what the verse immediately, immediately before that says? It says that Jesus called his disciples to him on the mountain. They worshiped him, but some doubted. Did you know that? Literally, the exact, like the, the immediately preceding verse. They worshiped him, they believed, but some doubted. And Jesus said to those mixed up, messed up people, hey, go change the world. Jude, verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. So we can say confidently in the scriptures, there's a type of doubt There's a type of questioning. It's not the hard-hearted doubt. God, you prove yourself to me. God, you're the one who's on trial. There's a type of doubt that comes to God and says, God, I do believe. I have some measure of belief, but my belief is not strong enough. My belief is not mature enough. I I need help. I need your assistance. We call that soft-hearted doubt. The good news, the good news of all of this, it's number five. My last point is that God is patient with our fears and our doubts. Are you glad that God is patient with us in our fears and our doubts? Again, if we could really see God face to face, we wouldn't have any fear, we wouldn't have any doubt. And yes, we're always called to take uh, the next steps of faith, to grow in our understanding, our trust in God. But there are people, godly, faithful, mature women, godly, faithful, mature men who've been walking with God for 50 years who still sometimes struggle with fear and still sometimes struggle with doubt. The list will probably change over time. It won't be the same list of things that you struggle with. But God's response, God's response to Gideon was one of grace. He, he met Gideon, even with the kind of testing fleece thing that he's doing. Psalm 103 tells us about the character of our God. It says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He knows how we're formed. And he remembers that we are but dust. Dale Ralph Davis, again, I quoted earlier, he says this, God is not ashamed to stoop down and reassure us in our fears. Would we, if we were thinking, call our three-year-old a sissy or a chicken because he was afraid of a big neighborhood dog? No, God's patient with our weakness. God doesn't mind humbling himself in order to bolster our fragile faith, our wavering grip on his word. He is so eager to do just that that he has provided a table instead of a threshing floor and bread and wine in place of a feast, in place of a fleece, I should say. And here, this author, uh, Mr. Davis, points us actually to the heart of the gospel itself. It's not only the character of God to to have compassion on us, but but God knows in a first-hand way because we as Christians believe that Jesus, the Son of God, the, the second member of the Trinity, took on flesh, took on humanity, which means he took on frailty and weakness. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, say that out loud, Every respect. How many different ways was Jesus tempted? In every way. He was tempted as we are, tested as we are, tried as we are, yet was without sin. 
You see moments of this where even Jesus in the garden, the night before his uh, crucifixion, he's praying, he's agonizing in the garden. He says, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass for me. But then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus never had even an iota, not even an ounce of that hard-hearted doubt that we're talking about. But there are places where Jesus is kind of wrestling with God. God, is, there, is, this, is this really the way? Is this, is this what you've called me to? But, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Do you see that heart of trust? Do you see that heart of faith? Do you believe, friends, that Jesus empathizes with you? When you're sitting there wrestling through some fears, you're sitting there wrestling through some doubts, do you view God as sitting in heaven with his arms crossed and his toe tapping, just waiting for you to hurry up and obey? Or do you see him as compassionate like a heavenly, like a, like, a, like a father who's compassionate for his children? Do you see Jesus like our big brother, the one who's been through it all and worse? And he has compassion on you. It's not just that God's compassionate for you, which is, which is beautiful enough, but God has also done something in and through Jesus Christ to put to rest once and forever any of our need for fear. Go back to 1 John, our our passage, our New Testament reading that we had. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. First of all, do you have any reason to fear judgment day? The Bible says that God's picked a day when when judgment is gonna happen. He'll judge the living, he'll judge the dead. But the scripture says we have confidence for the day of judgment. Why? Because the punishment that we deserve for our sins was taken out on Jesus 2,000 years ago on the cross and there's no more wrath left for you and for I. There's only God's grace. And you know what's more? It says as he is, also are we in the world. Do you know what that means? That's kind of a poetic way of saying what's true about Jesus is now true about us. If you have given him your sin, if you've trusted in him, what's true about Jesus is now true about us. Jesus was perfect. And when God looks at you, he doesn't look at you through the lens of your failures and your flaws and your fears and your doubts. He looks at you as though you were as perfect as Jesus Christ himself and has treated you accordingly. What are you scared of? You scared of judgment day? What are you afraid of? You you have doubts about whether you're going to make it? Have confidence in Jesus. There is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, John says. Again, I'm scared that maybe I'm not good enough. I'm scared that maybe I don't love God enough. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love, verse 19 says, we love because he first loved us. Friends, can I just tell you something about that fear? Like, I don't love God enough. I'm not following God hard enough. You don't love God enough. None of us do. We're all a hopeless mess. But the good news is, it's not about how much love we have for God. It's about how much love God had for us shown through the death of his son, Jesus. It's not about you loving God enough. It's about him loving you and letting his love transform your heart from one that is fearful to one that is confident before God. Every one of us is a hopeless train wreck. Amen? But all of us have a future that's incredibly bright. That is the good news of the gospel because what is true about Jesus is true about us. As he is, so are we in the world. What are you, what are you scared of? God's angry? No. All that wrath was dealt with on the cross. You scared that, that God doesn't love you? No. Look at, look at the cross. Look at the empty tomb. He loves us. Scared you're going to be judged? Judgment day is coming? You afraid of that? No. Jesus took our punishment. This is incredibly good news, friends. Let me, let, me, let me close with, with this. Um, one of my ongoing um, deepest prayers for Sound City Bible Church would be that we would be the kind of church where men and women, young and old, are, are free to speak up and say, you know what, I'm, I'm struggling with some things. And they would not receive pat answers, they would not receive cliches, they would not receive condemnation. Well, hey, just knock it off. But they would receive an invitation to speak those things out and to wrestle together as we pursue God. 
I have um, there's a friend uh, here, part of Sound City Bible Church, who told me that when he was growing up, and he was part of a church community, and he's a very inquisitive kind of guy. He's in arts and design sort of field, asks lots of questions, you know, and, and was literally told, you need to stop asking so many questions or you're going to hell. I know, that was my reaction as well. And for me growing up in the church, I had a very different experience by God's grace. But, and I asked him, like, was that literally said to you or is that just kind of your childhood interpretation? He's like, no, those were literally the words that were said to me. The other phrase that stood out was, was repeated. Enough times he memorized it was, your place is not to ask questions, your place is just to believe. And so he walked away from the church, he walked away from faith in God, he walked away from Jesus for decades. And only after he, he found a church community where he was welcomed and accepted and loved and was safe to ask some questions did he feel like God actually did that work in his heart of, of saving him, drawing him to himself. It was a, it's a beautiful story. Friends, you know that um, here at Sound City, we have people who not only came to church services on a Sunday, but were in a community group for over a year before they became a Christian. I know some of your experience in community group, like, oh, it's our Bible study time. And oh, yeah, how long have you been following the Lord? No, oh, how long have you been reading the Bible? Like, oh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not actually a Christian. I don't know if I believe this. But can I be here? And God was gracious. This community group loved this person for over a year. And it's a beautiful thing. Got to sit with, with them through just tears pouring down their face and pray to become a Christian, accept Jesus. I, I am eager for more of that. At Sound City Bible Church, we as the elders are eager for more of that. We want this place to be a safe place not for hard-hearted unbelief. May we never give um, room for that kind of just, you know, forget you, God, you better prove yourself to me, but may we be the kind of people that can discern the difference when there's genuine just wrestling, struggling, I need some help to be there, to support, to love. Some of you are, are just by nature more confident people, okay? Uh, which is good, you don't, have a, you don't struggle with a lot of doubts. My hope and my prayer for you is that you would grow in your ability to empathize with those who are struggling, to do what we saw in the book of Jude, have mercy on those who doubt. For all of us, though, today, I think there's an opportunity to take that next step of faith. For some of you, you're here, you're not Christians. The invitation today is take that first step of faith, move from unbelief to belief. God, I don't have this all figured out, God. I don't know all this stuff. I don't know all of what's going on, but I believe that you're real. I believe that you love me. I believe that you want to forgive me of my sins. Help me in my unbelief. For the rest of you, maybe you've been walking with Jesus for five years, 10 years, 40 years. We still struggle with doubts, don't we? We still struggle with fears. Where is God asking you to respond that one next step of faith? That one next step of reaching out and and taking his hand and trusting in him. I wonder if we could pray together even right now in this moment, for those who are struggling with fear and those who are struggling with that, would you mind just closing your eyes for a moment here? If you want to, you don't have to, but if there's fears or doubts and you want to just even kind of symbolically just like hold your hands up. God, I've got these fears, I've got these doubts, I've got these things I don't, I don't really know about. But God, I want to come to you today. God, I readily admit, I don't know everything. I don't have it all figured out. But God, I thank you that in your grace, I don't have to. God, thank you that you're gracious. I can come to you with my fear and I can receive your mercy. Thank you that I can come to you with my doubt and that you speak to me in that place and strengthen my faith. God, help me. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, we believe, but strengthen us in our faith, we pray. We pray all this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Friends, if you want to, we want to keep moving forward in our service time, but if there's something that's like stirred up in you, would you come find myself, find one of the other pastors, find your community group leader? Don't let this moment go without talking to someone else, hey, here's what I'm struggling with. Here's what's really going on. You'll have opportunity this week in your community groups, but, but sometimes even just 24, 48 hours later, it's like, all right, well, I'm kind of moved on past that. Just, I'll just encourage you to take that opportunity sooner than later to, to speak out what's going on with you.
For all of us, though, I do want to call us now to a time of response. And we're going to respond as we do in a few ways. We're going to respond through the giving of our tithes and offerings. If our volunteers begin collecting the offering, we'd appreciate that. Listen, friends, giving of your finances, what a great opportunity to express faith and trust in God in the middle of fears and doubts. How many of us, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but how many of us have fears and doubts related to money and finance? This is an opportunity for us to worship God in this way. If you're a guest or a visitor, please know you're not obliged to give. This is something we're going to do um, just as worship to God. If you want to join with us, you're welcome to. In a minute, we're going to welcome our younger students class in to join us as well for this time of response while they're collecting the offering. And, and in a minute, they'll hand out the elements for communion. Let me read a few discussion questions for us. Number one, what false gods are vying for your attention and devotion? And how can you, like Gideon, tear down those altars and pursue wholehearted devotion to God? Number two, in your own life, where do you struggle with fear and where do you struggle with doubt? And how can we help one another as we walk through those fears and doubts? Is it a time to, to open up in our community groups? Let's, let's share and be vulnerable. Number three, read Proverbs 1.7. How does the fear of the Lord help us as we work through our fears? And number four, where do you need God to point you more to Jesus, the one who overcame all fear and doubt on our behalf? A couple things to pray about as well. We want to be praying people, praying disciples, a praying church. Pray that we would not be driven by our fears or doubts, but that we would bring them to Jesus and trust in his courage. And number two, pray that God would use us to speak words of peace and life to those who are trapped in fear and doubt. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table here. And as the, the, the servants pass out the elements, I'll just invite you to hold on to it. We'll take it all together. But let me read this from 1 Corinthians 11. The Apostle Paul writes that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus himself, he, he did this. He took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, there's this invitation to examine. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then. Let a person examine himself and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Today, as we see this bread that's broken, let's be reminded that Jesus experienced all of our frailty, all of our weakness. Today, as we eat of this bread and drink of the cup, I know it's a simple tiny piece of bread, a simple sip of juice, but let's remember that Jesus strengthens us. It's not magical, but, but there is something mysterious about this practice that we're about to enter into, that, that even in the practice, this step of obedience and faith that God ministers to us in our weakness. Where are you weak? Where do you need his faith to strengthen you? And we're also going to sing. I'll invite our musicians to come forward. They're going to lead us in a time of singing. And this, this first song actually speaks about, it sings of that line that, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. God, we want to believe that you are good all of the time, even when circumstances are struggling with them. If you guys want to continue passing those elements for communion, let me, let me pray. And we'll begin our time of singing in response in a minute. If you want to even just sit before the Lord while we're beginning this song to just reflect some more on that, that's fine. But, but when you're ready, I encourage you, take the bread, drink of the cup, and then stand to your feet and join with us in song. God, we thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. God, we acknowledge that we have many fears and many doubts, but that Jesus is our source of confidence. May we never be confident in ourselves, may we never place our hope or our trust in ourselves, but may we have our confidence and our hope in you. Pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen.